when I say that I wanted, wanted it to be something, uh, I mean, it, it needs to contribute in a productive way. It, it wants to be productive, and it wants to be a, a habitat that is productive of, you know, plant material. In order for that to happen, it needs to be utilized by animals, and grazing beef cattle on it is a great analogy to the wild grazers that were here years and years ago of bison and elk and deer. And so that productivity is it's good for the environment. It will put a lot of carbon into the soil. Uh, so I think that's all a win-win combination. Welcome to the 303rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's often been said that one misses the forest for the trees. In other words, we get so focused on one or two details that we miss the big picture. I was reminded of that on a recent hot July day, when beef farmer Tom Hunter led me across an open hayfield down into the cool shade of a mixed hardwood forest on his southeastern Minnesota driftless area farm. At one point, he pulled out a tape measure and wrapped it around the trunk of a giant bur oak. It clocked in at a diameter of 9 feet 2 inches. Tom estimated this woodland giant is around 200 years old. Impressive. But as we walked back toward the farmstead, he pointed out some recently opened up pieces of ground at the feet of big trees like this oak. Those low-lying patches of grasses and forbs, Tom made clear, play a key role in keeping the skyscraping oaks healthy. They could also help keep this 240-acre farm economically viable, which is important when taking a holistic, big-picture view. Those sun-soaked oaks may catch your attention at first, but what happens in the shade matters too. Tom's Tangled Bank Farm is in the midst of a three-year civil pasturing project to reclaim oak savanna habitat while creating more grazing land for his shorthorn cow-calf herd. Oak savannas are stands of trees that have plentiful open spaces between where grasses and forbs can grow. In effect, oak savannas are the transition between prairie and woodland. One estimate is that by the time Europeans arrived, roughly 50 million acres of oak savanna habitat existed in a band stretching along the eastern edge of the Great Plains, from Texas into southern Canada. Most of the oak savanna was wiped out to make way for farming in the latter half of the 19th century. At best, 30,000 acres of the habitat remains in the Midwest today, and much of it is in the driftless region. It turns out that if you leave a woodland to its own devices, it will simply become a climax community, leaving little room for open spaces between the large trees. So it's become clear in recent years that oak savannas didn't develop by accident. Native American societies manage these habitats using methods such as fire. The result of creating such transition zones was a habitat rich in herbivores, like deer, elk, and bison, and which produced numerous nuts and fruits. And now we know such habitats produce a different kind of benefit. All those trees and deep-rooted grasses build soil and create a healthy hydrological cycle. These days, silvopasturing, such as the kind Tom is undertaking, offers up great potential for restoring oak savanna and similar habitats. At its most basic, silvopasturing involves producing trees and livestock in the same chunk of land. When done right, it can be a mutually beneficial arrangement. For one thing, livestock get access to low-cost forages and land that often isn't suited to growing row crops. In addition, they get access to shade, a particularly valuable resource at a time when climate change is creating extreme heat waves, among other things. The woodland benefits as well. 
Grazing livestock can help keep invasive species such as buckthorn under control while cycling nutrients into the soil, thus improving the health of the trees. And there's an even bigger benefit to combining livestock and trees. It turns out silvopasturing is a champion at sequestering carbon, which is a key player in the battle to keep greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. According to Project Drawdown, pastures with trees sequester 5 to 10 times more carbon as their treeless counterparts. And Project Drawdown estimates that on a per acre basis, silvopasturing can be over five times as profitable for a livestock producer as a conventional pasturing system. Tom Hunter had such a win-win scenario in mind when he started removing invasive species on roughly 30 acres of steep timberland. With funding from the Natural Resources Conservation Service's Environmental Quality Incentives Program, he's in the midst of a reclamation project that involves chainsawing, forest mowing, burning, and grazing. The goal is to eliminate, or at least control, species such as buckthorn, red cedar, and honeysuckle, and in the process get as much sunlight to the forest floor as possible, allowing grasses and forbs to thrive in the dappled shade provided by trees such as oaks. This method of management is called silvopasture by subtraction. Its counterpart is silvopasture by addition, which involves planting new trees in an open pasture or former crop ground. It should be pointed out that Tom has done a little tree planting himself. He's transplanted burr oak seedlings into some of the open areas in the hopes of creating pastures that will eventually be 50% shade covered. Whichever approach is used, it's important to remember that silvopasturing doesn't just entail turning livestock out and letting them wander around unfettered. Silvopasturing relies heavily on the adaptive grazing management systems farmers have perfected in recent years utilizing portable fencing and watering systems. It also requires close monitoring and timing animal movements in a way that prevents overgrazing. Such careful management is critical because let's face it, mixing livestock and timber habitat does not have a positive history. Foresters and ecologists can point to plenty of examples of cattle and other domesticated livestock doing major damage to forests. But farmers like Tom are proving that silvopasturing can play a positive role in woodland health, particularly on privately held lands that must produce an economic benefit for their owners. On Tom's farm, I saw firsthand the potential of this system. Where the woodland has been opened up already, grasses and forbs are thriving, and a wild orchid has even emerged. Tom has already been grazing his 100% grass-fed organic cow-calf herd in the opened-up areas, and he's moving forward on plans to do more forest thinning. He estimates that if all goes as planned, he'll see a 30% increase in grazing acres. After we toured the emerging oak savanna habitat, Tom sat down to talk more about how an 85-year-old aerial photo inspired him to pursue silvopasturing. And while an energetic wren sang its heart out in the background, he also shared some of the strategies being used to reclaim this woodland and chatted about the role innovative rotational grazing systems play in balancing tree health, soil health, and economic viability. So Tom, we were talking a little bit about over the years converted this farm from it was a when you came here it was a uh, had row crops had a had a mix it had uh, row crop uh, corn alfalfa oat rotation but you were committed to grass based grass fed uh, beef production so you've converted over the years you feel like you've been able to get that soil health going to the point where the pastures are kind of hitting their prime a little bit as well as the animals are doing really well on it your cow calf herd. So your next step that you've been doing just starting last year is silvopasturing. And you have about, you said I think about half the farm is in pretty heavy woods. And uh, so you were hoping to make some use of that 
land, but maybe talk a little bit, if you could, about what prompted you to take that next step. You've got a really great grazing open pasture system. As you said, it's really easy, uh, easy to move the fencing and all that. You walk just a few hundred feet down the slope and it gets steep super quick but you wanted to you felt like there was some potential there to maybe improve the habitat but as as also get some uh, beef productivity out of that area so maybe talk a little bit about what kind of prompted you to look look at that other part of the farm that maybe had been ignored in the past i would say two things one is that um early on i've i found online uh, a 1938 aerial photograph of the farm that shows that hillside as being mostly open in fact i think on that photograph you can see individual oak trees out scattered out across that um, hillside and so that made me realize that it wasn't always like it is now which is very overgrown and thick with red cedars and buckthorn and honeysuckle and all the rest of the culprits. Um, the other thing was to when I just walked that through those woods and, and every once in a while you'd come on this big, big old oak tree with wide-spreading branches, which tells you that it grew up in an open setting, that, that, there, that there just was something else that, that this area could be. And I just kind of got to the point where I wanted it to be something, something valuable or specific rather than just be a degraded mess, which is what it is now. So it took a long time to think about that and to get, a, get the project parameters put together. But essentially, we're trying to restore the oak savanna habitat that existed before settlement. That's the essence of what we're trying to do. We just took a walk down through there and we saw, so you've started, it's a three-year project that you're doing here and uh, you started last fall. Can you just, and we saw kind of the results already, you're already able to go in there and graze after doing some some opening up of that that understory a little bit, but can you describe kind of the process that you, there's a certain process you're going through, it's just not going through and removing certain trees or whatever, there is a kind of a method to the madness a little bit? I mean, the first rule is don't cut any oak trees, but there's a few more that we're not going to cut than that. Um, you know, butternuts are actually a state-protected species now, so we've got some nice butternuts, and we're keeping those. We've got some scattered nice walnut trees that we're going to leave and a few big stately hackberries that have cast some nice shade. But the, but the basic goal is, the real fundamental goal is to get sunlight on the ground, to get sunlight to hit the ground, and that will stimulate the, the restoration of the ground layer of the old prairie savanna species that used to grow there, grasses and wildflowers. So, so that means we're cutting all the big patches of red cedar, we're cutting all the buckthorn, all the honeysuckle, all the elms. And we're cutting, the small ones are being cut with chainsaws. Um, the big ones, are, for the most part, are being girdled and will be allowed to stand there and die and drop their branches over time and be standing dead snags for birds and habitat. The red cedars, you just have to cut those off at the ground, and, and we're getting the trunks pulled out and the branches cut off and burned. So that's gonna, that already is getting light on the ground. You can see this is the first growing season. There's a lot of regrowth. I do see some native grasses, and we've even had a, a native orchid pop up, twayleaf orchid. And um, so we can see that some things are starting to uh, come back, and now we're using the cows to, to graze that down and get prepared for fire as soon as, as soon as we can. Yeah, that's a good point. You, you're seeing some beneficial stuff come back, but also the buckthorn. It, the, the other things that like a little opening up is the buckthorn and honeysuckle and some of the invasives. So you've got the cattle in there, and we just walked down through there. You had cattle that this is their third day in this one paddock. 
uh, kind of on that area that had been opened up last uh, winter and you're going to move them again today but you're hitting that pretty hard with with there's a particular reason that you're kind of got them in there kind of in an intensive way right the cows will go around and eat what they like best first which is the meadow grasses that are around there Um, they do like things like box elder and aspen Uh, they'll go right after those you got to make them work a little harder uh, go past the stuff they really like to make them work on buckthorn and and honeysuckle and and mulberry i think mulberry maybe is one of their least favorite but um if you do give them that extra day and make them when it's starting to look kind of trampled um they will work on those and and especially the fresh sprouts the younger it is the more they'll go after them. one thing that really uh i find interesting about this this period of time that we're in right now where people are talking a lot more about silvopasturing and the the uh, options that are out there and the opportunities is it seems like this has been, it had a, historically a really bad reputation to turn livestock into timber, and there was good reason. They could do a lot of damage. So I guess we need to make clear, and foresters and you know natural resource professionals and other people who pay attention to that stuff just were really opposed to it. Some still are, <laughs> but the, it and there was good reason for it. That but things have changed. Uh, that that this is not uh, your grandfather's way of having livestock out in the woods. Uh, I think we need to make that clear. There's some things that have changed here. That, that both methodology, maybe some of the technology that and techniques that are available. Right, and and another different perspective is that the trees that will remain in there aren't really uh, envisioned for commercial timber production. Mm -hmm. They're part of the habitat to provide shade and to create the savanna, which is different from prairie and different from woods. So if you were managing for commercial timber, you wouldn't maybe want cattle in the woods. But so that's one thing. And then the other other part is it still needs to be managed grazing. So either through the use of electric fence or possibly through what they call patch burn grazing, Mm -hmm. where you burn small relatively small patches of the of the area and most of the grazing the cattle will do will be done in that first year regrowth after fire without fencing them into that area they'll choose to graze in that area so a combination of some of those kind of things which I don't really know yet what's what's going to have to be done or what will work we're going to have to discover that as we go along but that will essentially be managed grazing to limit the negative impact but to get the positive impact of grazing and the and the benefit of of feeding the cows for some number of days a year. Yeah, and the and the shade and that's the shade. a big one too. Yes, and the shade a, a lot of it will be grasses that'll be grazed this time of year when, when it is hot, and that shade will be very valuable. And and on scattered trees, the shade from the tree moves through the day, so the cows won't stay in one spot all day long as they would in just a thick canopy of trees so that'll keep them from help keep them from trampling over trampling some areas Uh, that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that that it would the shade would shift you know it's like and so we're sitting where we're sitting here we've got this big open area that i know you graze and you hay and beautiful stand of forage that you got here and that's perfect for grazing but we when we went down and looked at where the cattle are now kind of in that area that you've been opening it up where it starts to get a real slope to it it was i was glad that we were there because we're in it's july now and it was it's getting pretty hot and i think the cattle like you said they don't seem to be as they want to move maybe eventually but they're not as like uh saying i really want to get out of here they're they're kind of satisfied to be kind of in that 
shaded little area and kind of working on not just the forages there, but maybe some leaves and some other stuff that they're finding. Right. I think they know that there's something they can go work on that they can eat, and so they're not just insisting that they be moved right now. They're ready to be moved today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one thing, talking about adaptive managed grazing and kind of the changes and in, in the innovations in that area, portable, fen lightweight portable fencing that's affordable and portable watering systems really make this possible. I mean, it's really revolutionized being able to do something where you were able to kind of move them into areas that maybe weren't accessible in the past. Yeah, that's right. And that's, I think that's still going to be key. Uh, one thing that is going to be different in an area where we're going to need to burn probably every year for about 10 years is that any infrastructure it makes burning more difficult. So we're going to have to figure out how to minimize permanent infrastructure and just use temporary um, that can be gotten off of there so that when it comes to, when you've got a burn crew coming there, they don't need to worry about a fence quite so much. One thing you mentioned that I thought was really interesting was if some of these native species come back, some of those species tend to be maybe warm season species that can do well at a time when your cool season pastures are starting to go into a slump, especially starting kind of this time of year and going on forward. But you said you, you're also seeing some species, some native cool season species that are kind of that can kind of uh, thrive in that kind of situation. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing about savanna as distinct from prairie, the ground layer. Most prairies in our area are dominated by warm season grasses, but in savannas where there is shade that moves across there, uh, there are some native cool season grasses and native cool season forbs, wildflowers, that are adapted to that situation. And so not only will we be able to graze in high summer like it is now, but earlier in the year there will be grass in there. So we might be able to go through there a couple, two or maybe three times during the year. Yeah, and that kind of jumping off on that it too, is you, you had talked about how some of the stuff that's coming back was from the latent seed bank, that kind of seed bank that was there. But the other thing that you had talked about was the besides just the, the seed bank that's there and these seeds kind of germinating after getting exposed to that open area was this idea of some prairie plants that have been growing the roots have been established but maybe they just weren't growing very tall you open that up and all of a sudden they can really skyrocket up yeah i i think that's just something i've been learning about lately too but i think i think the example of it is this uh, wild orchid that popped up this year after we cut um, a patch of red cedars in late winter and, and got the limbs burned promptly so that when the growing season started here, it was pretty clear. And, um, and this wild orchid popped up and grew up to about eight or 10 inches and bloomed. And I, don't, I just don't think that that's likely that that came from seed in the seed bank, but rather that that plant was alive and was just dormant and just just hanging out there waiting for sunlight and the right conditions. And when those conditions came, it just popped right up. And we're also seeing that with, with some grasses. You know, when you buy native grass seed or any grass seed, you know, you need to use it in a year or two or the germination goes way down and you have to be careful how you store it. So it's so it's not surprising maybe that that a seed doesn't survive in the ground. Uh, maybe some of it does, but also some of the plants and that big root structure is surviving out there. And then when they get the chance and the conditions are right, they pop up. You'd kind of done an estimate of what this is costing per acre to do this. Uh, you've gotten some funding through the USDA's Equip program 
and I know you've been working with the, the NRCS. They've been helping, I think, with some technical help. But what, what kind of what is that estimate of what would it cost you? Oh, a very rough round number, I think, is um, $2,500 an acre to to do uh, the clearing and, and the restoration work. Um, that doesn't include seed costs to reseed it. We're really counting on the native plants coming back from, from the soil. And that's a lot. And, and, a, and the NRCS EQIP program is really making this project possible because it's almost like buying it again for that yeah. kind of land, yeah. that kind of rough ground. That's kind of what you pay for hunting ground. So it, the, the support of NRCS is really important on this. Yeah, and that, so that twenty five hundred. So there would it be roughly half half of that that they cover, or what? Well, the goal is that they cover seventy five percent, but that but that means that we can really control the cost of that twenty five hundred, which is a challenge. I mean, it's it's a lot of work, and we're we're getting some good volunteer support from the prairie enthusiasts that, that'll help us defray some of that as well, and and we'll look to those kind of things um, to make it work. Any advice on, I know you're just kind of getting going on this, but I know you've researched it a lot and, and been thinking about it a long time. Any advice to somebody who is interested in this, what we call, this is civil pasture by subtraction that we're doing here rather than, as opposed to addition, where we would be planting trees into an open field. Here you're removing some to kind of open that up. But any advice to somebody who's just thinking about it and kind of starting to consider it seriously? Well, the main advice I'd say is there's a lot of uh, good organizations that are getting a lot of information available people to learn about it. Uh, one is Sustainable Farming Association, which has a series of pasture walks. And even if you're not, uh, if you're not a grazer or don't have cows to graze, there's a lot of discussion about clearing and restoring or planting trees and all those kinds of things that would be useful to anybody. Another great group is the Prairie Enthusiasts, uh, especially for the Driftless area of Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa. They're really an excellent volunteer organization and do a lot of things and are very professional in their restoration and, and habitat work. Um, the Savannah Institute is also interesting. There's some prairie restoration groups in Illinois um, that, and all of these groups just have a lot of knowledge and expertise about how to get this work done. We were talking a little bit when we were walking down here about you kind of envisioning what this might look like five, ten years down the road. Describe kind of how you, yeah, what you kind of see, because you kind of have to look at the landscape and because this is a lot of hard work <laughs> and, and say, okay, this is what we're going to see at the end of the tunnel a little bit. Yeah, the first thing I think about is to is to see those individual oak trees that are there and have been there for, in some cases, a couple of hundred years, and to be able to see them out on the landscape without uh, trees growing up through their canopy or junk trees underneath them, get that all is cleared out and those oak trees exposed to the sun, and then in between to have this ground layer of native grasses and native wildflowers that are adapted to the savanna situation of part sun, part shade. Yeah. And to be able to see that and to know that the ecological processes of fire and grazing are what keeps that, uh, will help keep that habitat stable over the years. Yeah, and I think it's neat too. I mean, one of the things that got me excited was we went and you measured a, a nine-foot round burrow, which you estimate is maybe 200 years old. Mm -hmm. And that's really exciting. But it's also exciting to me that while we're measuring that, then we turn around and walk back to through the paddock where the cattle are grazing. They're going to be able to come in and help keep that tree healthy, that you're kind of using this working lands conservation concept. It's not just idling that land or 
doing some kind of intensive management where you're not getting economic value on it. I find that really exciting and kind of something, you know, I'd like that's something that kind of can contribute to that future that or that future landscape that you're looking for. Yeah, that, I mean, that's when I say that I wanted, wanted it to be something, uh, I mean, it, it needs to contribute in a productive way. It, it wants to be productive and it wants to be a, a habitat that is productive of, you know, plant material. But that, in order for that to happen, it needs to be utilized by animals. And, and grazing beef cattle on it is a great analogy to the wild grazers that were here years and years ago of bison and elk and deer. And so that productivity is it's good for the environment. It will put a lot of carbon into the soil. Uh, so I think that's all a win-win combination. More information on silver pasturing is available on the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 303 at org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you could call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for your Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 